When it comes to discussing our bodies, we often get a little uncomfortable. Women's health issues are often seen as off-limits, taboo topics we just don't talk about. It's time for that to change. Let's talk. Welcome to the Brave Mama podcast, where we are going to do exactly that. Discuss everything from periods to pregnancy, motherhood to menopause. No topic is off-limits. Join Stephanie Thompson, the brave mama and author of The Day My Vagina Broke, as she asks other brave women about their personal health challenges and triumphs. You will learn, laugh and cry as Stephanie finds out everything you wanted to know but were too afraid or embarrassed to ask. So, grab a cuppa and enjoy. Hello, brave mamas. Are you ready to get the lowdown about everything women's health? I'm your host, Steph Thompson, and I can't wait to share our special guest with you today. Our guest today believes that she's discovered a game changer in being able to regain the optimal function of her pelvic floor. And now she's educating others to be able to do the same. Today we talk with Hayley Wildsmith from Auckland Hyperpressives. She shares her journey to motherhood and her lived experience with prolapse, in particular with Levada avulsion, gives her that true empathy and understanding that women in this space need and are craving. I loved this in-depth, extensive chat about pop. Lucky I grabbed a huge cup of Madame Flavor's Rooibos Mint and Choc because we had a lot to cover. Welcome Hayley to the Brave Mama podcast. It is amazing to be able to talk to you from Australia all the way. Well, we're practically neighbours in New Zealand, right? We are, we are. And thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, So let's just start off. You're a mum. Let's talk about your family. Tell us a little bit about your, you know, your kids. I am a single mother of three. I have three kids. My eldest is 12 going on 13. Then I have, uh, that's a girl, and then I have a son who was born 11 months after her, so they are Irish twins. He's 11 going on 12, and then my youngest is three and a half. Okay. Oh, yes. Welcome to that uh, three-year-old. I don't know if you're having those tantrums, but we certainly are at the moment. It's incredible. He is full on all of the time. Yeah. So your three and a half-year-old's a boy as well? Yes. Two boys and a girl. Yeah, right. Lots of energy like us. Um, So what were those birthing? You've obviously got three children and we can assume have three different birthing experiences. What were they like for you? They actually were all quite different. My daughter, I mean, I was 20, how old was I? 22 when I had her. Mm -hmm. So I was quite young and I guess I didn't really know what to expect too much. Um, but they say that that is the perfect childbearing age. However, I don't feel like I'm naturally built to push babies out very easily. They just, they just seem to get stuck and she was difficult to push out very fast labor, but, um, she did come out and I had a second degree tear without any sort of medical intervention. They nearly gave me an episiotomy, but didn't. Um, and 
then before I knew it, I was pregnant again. So my body didn't really have too much time to recover from that, from that delivery. Um, and then sure. 11 months later, here I am in the delivery room at a natural birthing center because we thought, okay. well, the first one went okay. The second one should go just the same. Um, and my son, my, my second child, he got well and truly stuck. So that was a shoulder dystocia delivery. And right. Is that when the shoulder gets stuck at the opening and the shoulder comes and you out just, first? You okay. just can't really push them out. Um, usually you'd be in a hospital and at that time they would intervene with forceps or a vontus or provide you with an episiotomy. I was at a natural birthing center, so I didn't have access to any of those things. And there was a ambulance outside, however, that was just too difficult because he was already crowning to get me from the bed into the ambulance all the way to the hospital uh, for a yep. C-section in time. And um, so my midwife, who luckily she was there, she's highly experienced. She basically used her arms as forceps to get him out at a time where he, he had to get out then and there. Um, and so she did that. And it wasn't actually that painful at the time. Um, and I didn't tear either, which was interesting because the amount of damage that I, I think it was that birth. But, I mean, we never really know between the first and the second um, yeah. left me with some avulsions. Now, we don't know which ones and which birth did which damage, but the third child was born 10 years later, and I was quite nervous about that birth, obviously, after having a shoulder dystocia delivery. And yeah. he came out like a absolute wrecking ball. It's like <laughs> there was nothing there to stop him from coming out. And I was actually booked in for a cesarean section to have him because of the their birth trauma from the yeah. first two um, and the dangerous delivery. However, I went into labor early and we just didn't have time for them to set up an, op an operating room and get the surgeon in the middle of the night. So, um, and he was not going to wait for anybody. So he came out naturally and that was another, I think it was just a first degree tear, I think actually with him. However, sure. I had quite a moderate postpartum hemorrhage and um, I'm not sure if that birth in particular gave me more damage or whether it was some from that birth and some from the second. I, I really don't think it was too much to do with the first, um, okay. but my diagnosis wasn't given until after all three children. So it's really uh, hard right. to pinpoint who where yeah who caused what yeah and i guess that was going to be my question so between the 10 years between the second and the third birth had you had any medical help or had you seen anyone or had you had any i'm asking 10 questions here all at once i know um did you have kind of any symptoms or anything of prolapse to say hey i need to go and get this seen too or was it just after the third birth no absolutely i definitely had problems and i saw plenty and plenty of different professionals from specialists colorectal surgeons to gynecologists uh, pelvic floor physical therapists and more than just one of those and not one of those professionals 
diagnosed me with any type of avulsions throughout that time. I was, through that time, this is before the third one, remember, I was diagnosed with permanent nerve damage and they were able to come to that conclusion from the colorectal surgeon and the tests that he did with um, yes. surgical, um, certain electrical stimulus devices um, and cameras. And um, after the third one, the, the problems, the symptoms started after the first two, about two years after that. So I was quite blissfully unaware for two years yeah, that I had years. any real problems. They only really started... What were the symptoms? Um, well, they only, I had none up until two years after where I started to exercise because I wanted to lose the baby weight, right? So I thought, oh, I'm just okay. going to start running. Um, I yep. was not... A, a fit person at any time through my life and so I joined a gym and I could do a workout okay but as soon as I got on that treadmill I had problems of like little bits of incontinence and then um, I started to get a heavy sensation just in, in general day to day and then I started to get pain with sex like quite severe pain um, and then from there, I became hypertonic, which is where your muscles start to tighten up and they don't really allow anything to go in, such even oh, in a your pelvic, speculum. Yeah, you mean like your pelvic floor, vaginal wall, that, that yeah. that's what gets really tight. Yeah, and the whole perennial area. So if anything tried to go in there, it was like your muscles just tighten up. And so those were my main symptoms and I think probably constipation as well. I had quite a okay. bit of that. Um, and then in my pregnancy with my third baby, it felt like he was going to fall out of my body onto the floor with every single step that I took from wow. about 10 weeks, 10 weeks pregnant oh, wow. to wow. about 16 or 17 weeks of my pregnancy. And okay. That, so that's the first trimester, isn't it? Well, between the first the and the second. second. And then that yeah. was the real highlight that there was something still quite majorly wrong because between in that time period, this is a 10-year period, I became a personal trainer. I specialized in pregnancy and postpartum rehabilitation. I rehabilitated myself not knowing what my issues actually were because they never really told me. But I rehabilitated yeah, right. myself to the point where I was completely asymptomatic anyway up until up until that pregnancy and then that was a real highlight that there was a serious issue and so back to the different professionals this time I I had one gynecologist or she's more like a urogynecologist and she said I don't even need to look at you you need to get some scans done we're not going to do them now because you're pregnant but as soon as you've had the baby and I think you should have a cesarean um, we need to get some scans taken and that is the only reason why I was able to get the diagnosis which was that I had four completely avulsed pelvic floor muscles. Which means for those who are listening and are probably either new to the journey or have prolapse and don't know is that those four muscles were detached from your pelvic from your pelvis. Yeah the they detached right? from their origin point so I had avulsions on both sides of the levator ani muscles, which are the main pelvic floor muscles which attach to the pubic bone at the front. 
Now that they make the first part of your sling or your pelvic floor sling. And then I also had avulsions on both sides of the deep transverse perennial muscles. So they run uh, along sideways or transversely as, as the name um, <laughs> indicates. Yeah, yeah. And they provide a, a massive base of support for the back vaginal wall and for the perennial area. And um, it's hard to tell which birth did what, but I, I do have an inkling that the levator avulsions were from the second child and that the perennial avulsions were from the third child. And that is why with the third child, I had a hemorrhage and they couldn't find the source of the bleeding, which I think is another, it's a good point to to mention because a lot of women may have a hemorrhage and they can't figure out where the bleeding is coming from. It's coming from somewhere. It's either, usually it's a, it's a wound in the uterus or it's some sort of pelvic floor muscles which have been torn and they are bleeding. Um, that makes sense. It does. It makes sense. So a lot of this stuff, if you think about it, it does make sense. And for those women who have levator avulsions, yes, there's not much to slow down the baby, right? And like I mentioned, the third one came out like a wrecking ball. It's like there was nothing there to slow that process down. Um, but I would have never known because, again, I got to a point where I rehabilitated myself using my skill set after the third baby, which it took me a long time to recover from that pregnancy, but I did it. And I got back to the point where I was completely asymptomatic and I did not have a detected prolapse anymore. And at the beginning, were you in that 10 years, were you ever given a grade of prolapse, like stage one, two, three, or four? Or um, did anyone ever tell you what, if it's your bowel or your bladder that was prolapsed? Did they even give you that information? They gave me, that's a great question. I have to think back because I've seen so many different professionals. Yeah. Um, I was and definitely given indications that it was more the back vaginal wall that was a problem. Um, they often actually thought it was maybe something to do with the anal sphincter, which it was not really. It was nerve damage from the birth. It was levator avulsions. And um, at some point, the perennial avulsions happened as well. But they yeah. never gave me a grading of a prolapse in that first 10-year block. However, okay. after the second baby, I definitely had a second degree prolapse um, at some point because you could see it at the second degree. Yeah. Um, and even then, it's quite hard, and maybe it's different in different countries, it's quite hard to get professionals here to give you a number of a grade. And I understand why they do that because if you're lying down, you might be given a diagnosis as a grade one. If you stand up, you might all of a sudden be a grade 2.5. You might have your period and be a grade three. You might be outside oh of your yes. cycle and be a grade 1.5 to two. Like it, it's it's really hard to, to give that official diagnosis of a number and then to be fixated on a, about the number itself. What we need to worry yeah. about is what are our problems, what has been damaged, and what can we do to fix this what can we do ourselves yeah. to be proactive alongside the advice of professionals to make things better instead of allowing them to get worse yeah that's such a good point because i i had been to 
five different clinics and kind of got five different diagnoses from a stage two to a stage four, three compartment prolapse. It all depends on, I I know this is sound quite gory, but how, how high they can put their hand inside, how the finger width, you know, had I traveled for two hours and sat down before the appointment or had I been walking around, was it in the morning or afternoon? So yeah, I hear you that a number is not, I was I was more so asking because I think no two prolapses are the same, but most women that we see in our community who have been diagnosed with a stage one, two, two, no, no beyond, do find pelvic floor exercises helpful. But for women similar to me, three and four with avulsions, find that exercise does not improve prolapse. So I would love to talk about that some more. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So women with grade one to two prolapses, and this is where the, my biggest thing is that with prolapse, and it's unfortunate for women who are already in a grade three to four where things are at quite an advanced stage, but there are, there is a lot more hope for women if they can catch it early. So obviously prevention is the best cure. If we can prevent these things from happening even in the first place, then obviously we're better off. But then for women to catch it earlier on, it's important for them to do something about it while they still can, before things start to get worse. Because if you're, it's just like fighting, this is a horrible comparison, but let's take the example of if you're trying to fight cancer, okay? You get the cancer cells, they start to multiply it's much easier to fight the disease earlier on than it is um, if you if you Latest get a day. diagnosis extremely late. And prolapse is, is no different, and it can affect your life in a massive way. And so if we can encourage women to try to get on top of things sooner rather than later, um, I think it's extremely helpful. And unfortunately, a lot of women get so um, caught up in the diagnosis stage because let's be honest, we remember that it is quite a big fright. And unfortunately, a lot of women go down a bit of a spiral where they allow the diagnosis to really overtake their life. And in that process, because it comes at such a shock, it right? It is. That's, it's such a shock, like, and a lot so of women, many women feel, say, "Yeah, they sorry. feel alone. They feel like their life is over, which it's not." Um, and they're not alone as well, but it's important. No, to... one in two, right? Fifty yeah. percent of women, and but most of those women still don't like a pro what a prolapse. What what is that? I I don't know about that. Yeah, it's crazy. Exactly. It, it is absolutely crazy because this affects up to fifty percent of women in their lifetime. And if mm-hmm. we can do something about it sooner rather than later and raise awareness, then then that's excellent. And yes, unfortunately for women who are in the grades three to four, um, they might be better off going for um, a pessary and then really limiting the exercises to only the things that are going to help and make them better. And it does limit their quality of life. It it really does. But at that stage, um, it's hard because you don't want to make it worse and you don't want to be gung-ho and think, oh, I just want to do this and this and this because there can be consequences to um, living outside of your capabilities when it comes to your pelvic floor. Yeah, it's really hard to adjust. And I'll put my hand up and say, even my daughter turned six this year and I'm still processing that. I'm still getting to know 
myself and still realizing that I can do that sometimes, but then other times I can't. Can't walk upstairs today because my period's due and I'm really symptomatic. And just finding those patterns, feeling like I can find some trends, but then quite often you get lost and, and you you think you're onto it and then they throw it. You know. it. It's really unpredictable. The prolapse itself is so unpredictable. It doesn't have patterns of, you know, it's definitely this on this week or whatever. It just, yeah, it, it's constant adjusting. It does make you change your entire life. And prolapse and is not biased. It will, it will take on any woman from any background with any race. Um, yeah. <laughs> who looks any kind of way and it can be any age. It doesn't have to be a woman who's, who's had children either. It can happen to women who haven't had babies. And it does also happen a lot to women who have gone through menopause, babies or not. So that's um, right. it's more than just something that's postpartum. And it can happen. See, that one of the misconceptions is that it only happens to women who have vaginal births and in particular forceps delivery. There's a lot of talk about that. But there are women who can still prolapse who have had cesarean sections as well. Then um, I don't think the numbers are as common. But to me, stats and numbers don't really matter because it takes that human element out of who we're talking to, women. And so for it to happen to any woman, is it's really hard. So I, I want to just talk about so you had the 10 years in between then the third baby and you, you you just said that you were able to get yourself back up to being quite um like you were able to manage it how did you do that it feels like yeah i mean i'm i'm blessed that i have the skill set that i do that i'm able to just trust in myself and what i know and i can go for it quite wholeheartedly without having to hold back and not having so much fear. And I think that a lot of women allow the fear of A, the diagnosis, and then B, the fear of making things worse. They can cotton ball themselves, especially in those early stages where you really have the chance to make an impact on reducing or even reversing your prolapse completely. Um, but a lot of women go the other way and they're too scared to do anything at all. So I'm quite, I've always been quite proactive with managing my pelvic floor um, okay. since the beginning of my diagnosis. And I have always been quite active. In fact, my prolapse, my pelvic floor will always, always play up if I have too long of a period where I am not engaging my muscles and keeping them awake and keeping them active. Okay. So I yep. think a huge missing, a huge secret of helping prolapse and pelvic floor dysfunction is strengthening the glutes. The glutes are what support the bottom of the pelvic floor. And if, if you have an injury with your knee or your shoulder, Rehab 101 is you strengthen the muscles around the injured area to take the pressure off the joints or muscles that are that's injured struggling. so that they don't have to work so hard. And that yeah. is one of the big pieces of the puzzle that I feel like is often overlooked, the strengthening of the glutes. So I spend a lot of time on breath work, glutes, um, and then strengthening the transverse abdominals with optimal breathing. Okay. And one of the biggest mistakes, actually, I think a lot of women could learn from this one of the biggest mistakes I made was over-strengthening 
the rectus abdominis, which is the outside abdominals, which provide the ab look, over-strengthening those and under-strengthening the transverse abdominals, which is the, the corset abdominal, which provides you with postural support and connects to the pelvic floor as well. And they're the ones you don't kind of do with crunches. They're the ones that you kind of have to do with breathing and controlling, right? Absolutely. And what will happen if you overstrengthen your rectus abdominis and you don't strengthen your transverse abdominals enough? So if your rectus abdominis overpowers your deep corset abs, your lower abdominals, then you get dysfunction. And the pressure is not managed correctly inside the abdomen. So we have prolapse, which is a pressure management issue. If you overstrengthen your rectus and you do not match that with having a stronger transverse abdominal, or if you have dysfunctional breathing patterns, you will have a pressure management issue. Pressure management issues either lead to pelvic floor problems or a separation yeah. of the abdominal muscles at the front, or both. Yeah, that's when you feel the bulge. That's when you get the heaviness, right? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I just I want to go back to something really quickly, and I need your help with this one. So I um, just before you said if you if women are able to get on top of it early and are not kind of stuck in the diagnosis phase and get straight onto physiotherapy, they have a better chance of recovery. Is that true for women like me with avulsions as well? Because I feel like I knew I had the prolapse probably in the same in the same week uh, my daughter was born. And then was at physio not too long afterwards and was working really hard, like three times a week and trying to do everything they said. Um, and But I did find out later on down the track that no amount of physiotherapy was actually going to get my prolapse back to where it was or back my, my bladder back up the vaginal canal on its own with exercise. But I do know if I don't do them, I'm more symptomatic. <laughs> It's, I feel like it's even more important for women with levator avulsions. And I'm speaking from experience here as well. Yes. It is frustrating because it's a much slower climb to recovery with levator avulsions. They're the main part of your pelvic floor muscles. And if they are not attached to the bone or if they're partially attached, then it's going to be a slower road to recovery. And it can be a very frustrating one at that. And that's where patience and consistency and trusting in the process can really come into play um, and you can feel like you want to give up at times but it's important to stay consistent and to know that you will eventually get some sort of results um, if you don't know what you're doing in terms of exercise prescription and what kegels to do what not to do it's important to follow the advice of your pelvic floor physiotherapist because they are the people who have internal access to assess you of where you're at at each stage and then also they can provide an internal assessment at the same time as you performing certain exercises to make sure that you are doing them right because sometimes with avulsions you just you can't feel what you're doing and you you don't really know a lot of the time if what you're doing is right and they can guide you through that so that can give you a little bit of peace of mind um, to keep pushing forward. Yeah, with that biofeedback, I had that where they kind of insert the the camera so that you can look at the screen and then they tell you to do 
and then you you do your traditional what you think is a kegel and it's like it's not even moving and then, <laughs> and then they're going to tell you they're going to teach you how to do it and then when you do it for the first time and you can see it moving and then you can feel something happening like oh that's what it is okay yeah. that's totally different to what i thought absolutely so tell us you also had um Obviously, exercise was a major part of it, and I can tell that you're so dedicated, but there was also some extra support in terms of surgery that you were able to have. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So after my diagnosis of the avulsions, which was when my third child was around 18 months old, um, and this diagnosis came as a big shock to me too. I went through that same phase of, oh my God, what is wrong with my body? I'm completely ruined. I'm destroyed. Um, but you know, you, you had to work through that and the gynecologist said, look, you have the levator ovulsions. There's no surgical fix for those. However, you have deep transverse perineal ovulsions and there is a surgical fix for those. And I recommend you get it as soon as possible. Um, and I'm surprised that you're walking around like this without any symptoms, considering the extent of damage that you have. And so for me, it was a no brainer. Um, there's muscles which are not attached to their insertion points in the perennial area. I have I've had problems with a rectocele, which is where you prolapse through the back vaginal wall. And it just made total sense to, of course, I'll get them surgically repaired. So he was, when did you go for that surgery? Was it just the one surgery or was it multiple? It was just one surgery and I had that done it was probably about three months after that diagnosis and I, I asked for, I suggested that they also do a, a reinforcement of the back vaginal wall while they were there, while she was there and she agreed that it was, it was in my best interest to do that at the same time because the perennial muscles and the back wall work together to support um, that back area of your pelvic floor. So I wow. had that done and the recovery was, it was long and it was slow and it was a lot harder than recovering from any of those three childbirths, but I would do it all again in a heartbeat um, if I needed to, because the support that it's given me has just been immense. It's Yes, I was asymptomatic, but I could still feel my pelvic floor. I could still feel that there were problems. I had to be a lot more careful and I was a sitting duck for a trifecta of a prolapse happening again um, and not at a small degree either. So uh, for me, it was a no-brainer. But for other women, they might. And that was because I had those transverse perennial avulsions. Anyone who has those, I think, should get them surgically repaired, um, obviously on the advice of your surgeon. But for other women who have just general prolapse or for us with levator avulsions, it's really about weighing those options up directly with their surgeons because they are the people who can give them a proper assessment internally um, and then they can get a second opinion if they want and then they can weigh up the yeah. options themselves because there's no guarantees for surgery. They don't all last forever. and some... Yeah, I think that's the main concern, isn't it, women? And, and yes. just to... Um... Do you, in New Zealand, are you allowed to have mesh? Was that was part of that surgery included like a mesh that, you know, it's in the media a lot with prolapse surgeries gone wrong? Mesh is banned in New Zealand. So there's okay. no way that that gynecologist 
thankfully wouldn't have ever put mesh inside me um but i believe it's it's possible that they may use it for certain abdominal surgeries where they see mm -hmm. that it is necessary but it's no longer used in new zealand um, it's it's banned for pelvic floor surgeries yeah i've got mesh i've had mesh put in my in my abdomen from a tumor after my second birth um but we yeah i literally had to otherwise my organs would herniate out of my <laughs> yeah and i think that's the same but from what I know, well, from what I've read, you know, I'm not an expert by any means, but the mesh that the women were having issues with wasn't necessarily always the mesh. It was who was putting it in, how they were putting it in, maybe not as skilled as people who needed to be able to do that. So for, me for some people, mesh has been okay. And for a lot of women, it has destroyed their lives in what was already a hard time. So I get it why they did a blanket ban. But at the same time, if you potentially, I think we need to revisit something at some point because at the moment for me, there is no current surgeries that can help. And I just, yeah, like you said, just a sitting duck, you just have to sit and wait. So we've either got to wait for a new technology or a new, um, I think, stem cell therapies in the pipeline in, in medical trials. But until then... Um, there's not much we can do. And so really until then, you know, in situations like that, the aid of a vaginal pessary can be a massive difference to enjoying your life and being miserable from day to day with your symptoms. So I know that you use a pessary, right, Steph? No, oh, no? I have tried. Oh, you've yeah, tried, no, I've right, tried. that's right. So, about seven different types from uh, four different clinics, like some private, some public, and they just don't stay in because of the avulsion. So I can put I can put them in, but as soon as I, I stand up or walk, they just flop out. And that's including different sizes, shapes, cubes, suction. Um, I'm currently in contact with a team in New York who are developing a new pessary because it's been a long time since they've changed, which I'm really hoping will be able to help people with avulsions because I think the, the major issue is is that I need one that can take up quite a big space that's not there. But to get something like that inside <laughs> while you've got toddlers banging on the bathroom door, mommy, and you're just like, oh, you just, you, you end up ripping, you know, your labia muscles and, the, and they, they bleed and it's quite, it's quite a horrible experience. Um, but I have tried for many, many times over the last, probably the most four years, the last bit I have, even an external pessary that sits in your underpants. I've tried that. Yes, I, I remember um, that. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm never going to stop trying. So, you know, whatever kind of comes up, I will be giving it a go because I do believe that will be, for me, really the only thing, and for a lot of women, the only thing that could, could be helpful. Um, yeah, but it's a, it is a tricky one, so you know, I've just got to keep watching that space and hopefully either a surgery or a pessary come onto the market that's new. And so this new one, it's like, um, think of it, remember like a tampon um, applicator that you used to use as, as a young kid? Yeah, you can kind of push it through and then when it, when it goes inside, it opens out like a mushroom. Excellent. Yeah, and then when you need to take it out, you pull it and it closes and it comes out. That is brilliant. 
Yes. That's total brilliant. Three. So for women with avulsion, that's extremely important. And I'm the same. It's, it's hard to find the right pessary because I can get them in and out, but only a small one. <laughs> and um, if you can get something like that, which expands once it goes in, then that's even better, especially for women with avulsions. Yes. So I'm, they're in clinical trials now, but because of COVID, everything was on pause and it slowed down. So I'm trying to be really patient waiting for it, but I'm like, just give me one. I just want to try it. <laughs> um, yeah. So look, I know you talked about surgery and, and a really long recovery. If you had any tips for women who are either a broaching surgery because there's lots of people who are booked in um, or thinking about surgery I think we have heard from our you know community that they get conflicting information about okay so you've had surgery now you need to wait three weeks three months 12 weeks uh, you know oh, it's the same thing but yeah so they they get conflicting information about what they can do you can't lift five kilos you can't lift 10 kilos what would be some of the tips that that worked for you, obviously, because your surgery um, is has been successful and still is. I I get really upset that the advice given to women is is so basic, and it basically says, and uh, this is what was given to me as well. At six weeks, you can return to exercise as normal. I'm sorry, what? Uh, but until then, don't lift anything heavier than five kilos and do not whatever you do lift your baby and I had a 18 month old so I didn't lift him for for four to six weeks I, I just didn't it was hard but I did it um, and it was important not to do that because he was of quite a decent weight so it is important especially in those early stages that you do not exert yourself because you can reverse your surgery just as quickly as they performed it on you so to that yes. extent, yes, you need to be extremely careful in the first six weeks. However, you can't just then return to exercise as normal. That is absolutely ludicrous. And it's also ludicrous to say to women, you can't ever lift more than seven kilos for the rest of your life, which is what a lot of other women are told, told. as well. This is just not yes. feasible. What's important is to, if you have access to a woman's health physiotherapist or an exercise professional like myself who who specializes in prolapse and postpartum recovery and post-surgical repairs, that you follow their advice and you work closely with them and you slowly and gently progress yourself from point A to wherever you want to go. And, and some women will find a ceiling point at some, at some way along their journey and that might be where they, where they sit and that might be where they need to just start focusing on maintenance um, I think I know what my ceiling point is, but mine would be completely different to someone else because my exercise history is quite extensive. Um, so it's important to get guidance and it's important not to rush out and do anything straight away. A lot of women get quite frustrated and they really want to just get stuck into something, but it's so important to, to slowly recover and my surgical repair took a long time to recover from. I couldn't stretch my hamstrings without feeling like I was going to pop a stitch for about oh, wow. six weeks. So if I can't bend over and touch my toes, there's no way in the world it's safe for me to go out and jump on an exercise bike for 20 minutes. Absolutely. It's just not feasible. So um, finding someone like to guide you through them. is important. Yeah. 
it's almost like we need experts like you who know exercise inside out. You blow my mind, by the way, phenomenal. And have had lived experience to rewrite the literature on what is presented to women when they have these types of surgeries, right? I wish I could be there for each and every individual woman to help them recover from their surgery after a surgery. And and it's it's hard because we like to blame the surgeons, right? Because they're the ones who did the surgery, so they should be the ones to look after us. Their job is to be the surgeon. Their job is to cut and to perform the surgery. They are extremely intelligent and they have done several, several years and spent thousands of dollars to get to the point where they are. They don't have the capacity to learn exercise prescription and become exercise professionals at the same time. It's just just not how it's going to work. But that's where it would be great if the system could change and we could have a set of exercise professionals, ideally women's health professionals who specialize in exercise, who could work yes. in the hospitals and be that next point of of referral after a surgeon after a surgery so that they can get the care that they need but it's it's just not the way most countries operate some countries in Europe um, are a lot better and they okay. will refer you to a physiotherapist Spain's great France is great but other countries they just um, they just have that gap and that's where a lot of women do some damage i have a question for you and i keep putting my hand up because i hate this zoom because of the slight delay i don't i'm sorry i really don't like talking over you and i apologize that's why i like putting my hand up so if you think about it right when you go in and have a knee surgery a knee replacement a hip replacement you are automatically enrolled in a rehab program that is linked to the hospital did you have any type of rehab assigned to you or support from the hospital absolutely nothing i asked to be put back to be referred back through the system to a woman's health physiotherapist because i knew that that's what i needed sure i'm an exercise professional but i i'm i i can't internally assess assess myself the same way a woman's health physiotherapist can can do for me so i asked for that um unfortunately COVID happened um and I didn't get to see someone for quite a long time. Um, in fact, my six-week post-surgical follow-up with my surgeon was pushed to four months. And when wow. she saw me at that point, she said, this is her words, she said, oh, my God, oh, my God, you're like a virgin. Oh, it's, 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 <laughs> it's, it's, it's atrophying. You're like a virgin. It's like you've had no babies out of there, and it's, it's not a good thing, by the way. Um, so I had to go through certain therapies, which I, I basically did myself because it took so long for me to see a woman's health physiotherapist. It took six months. Um, wow. So I performed dilator therapy on me, which was from the instruction of the surgeon. Um, and yeah, there really was a definite gap. And I'm so blessed that I have the knowledge that I do of not only the anatomy, but also the exercise prescription. But what about all of the other women? They don't have that. Yeah, I'm thinking that as people are listening, they're like, oh, well, that's that's great for you. But then, you know, and just as we were talking, my mind's going straight to thinking, well, it's 
it took someone to think about there was a gap in that breast cancer, uh, you know, breast cancer awareness and breast cancer support. And then once everything turned pink and there was pink ribbons, we then we introduced to breast care nurses. If this is one in, you know, one in two women and 50% and a lot of those women going through surgeries, even though it's not life-threatening like cancer, it is, for some women, very life-altering. And, for, and what you just said it then, I would love to be there to help these women after surgery. What an amazing initiative it would be for women to be able to go in, in home support and support and help women who have just had this surgery to lift the baby, to do this, to do these things. My God, could you imagine? Could you imagine how much better that would be? For, and that probably you could assume would also, re, yeah, reduce the um, relapse rates. Surely, surely. Although we don't have that right now, what's what would be important to women is to take that initiative themselves. And if you know that you don't have the knowledge, find someone who does. Find a women's health physiotherapist. Find someone like me. Make sure they're good, though. Make sure they're good. You can go That's to a good hairdresser thing. and you can go to yeah. a bad hairdresser, just like a good GP and a bad GP. Make sure you resonate with that person. They need to have experience. Not, I mean, not all women need to have personal experience but it does help right it's just like saying a woman's health physiotherapist is not going to be good if she hasn't had a prolapse it's definitely not the case but it might help if they have had some sort of lived experience, lived experience absolutely and they can help you with that but just because on the flip side they've had a baby or they've had pelvic floor problems that also doesn't mean that they're qualified to help you and assist you through your journey. You need to have both aspects of, of that to really make sure. And you need to trust the person. You know, you just know when someone is the right person to look after you. And I can't yeah. tell you how many women I've had in front of me who have spent thousands and thousands of dollars and spent years seeing so many different specialists and professionals. And they met That's me and then they're, they're, they're almost, you know, they're in tears saying, this is the first time I've ever felt like anyone's actually listened to me and felt like I've actually got some hope. And that's just awful to me to think that there's so many women out there who have really been to the point of suicide. Let's be honest. A lot of these women are so depressed from their diagnosis that they have thought about taking their own lives. And to spend all that money and time and still feel like you're not being listened to that's just horrible so make sure that you you find someone that you can trust and that you also apply yourself because the other the other issue I see is a lot of women get great advice but they don't follow it so then it's about being consistent getting good advice following the advice slowly yes. progressing yourself back to the best health that you, you can get and that yeah is because also be at, the, for at the same time so being consistent and getting the knowledge a lot of these women just like us were also trying to be first-time moms like you're trying to to learn your identity from being a single person to this motherhood and that adjustment is a massive thing in itself and then when you can't do the things that you want to do as a mum, like pick your kid up or wear it in a pouch or do those it's just that constant it, it can be really negative and I've read I've read so many mums 
comment saying, I can't live like this anymore. And I do get scared and wonder how many of those women are no longer with us. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's not a nice... Um... It's not a nice thing to experience a woman being so low because of the diagnosis of prolapse and feeling so lost that she would consider taking her own life. But I can sit here and tell you as someone who works in this space that it happens all of the time. And I have women who contact me for support from all around the world who are exactly in that position. And not everyone in the world has the care that I get here in New Zealand. You know, we like to complain about what we get here in New Zealand, but what we get is actually quite good compared to other pa- yeah. other places in the world. Oh, wow. My goodness, that's heavy, hey. We'll just sit with that for a yes. minute because, yeah, I just um, – I've, I've, look, to be honest too, I've been there. Like I, I have been to the point where I'm like I actually don't feel like I'm a good mum and I feel like a really shit mum and I don't – well, if I can't do that, then why – I'm just in – I'm just in the bloody way, you know, like I'm, I'm, I felt, I have felt moments of being more of a liability to my husband and to my family and to my kids that I'm like, yeah, I'm out. But lucky I am tapped in to professional counseling because I know that's part of the process and I can recognize that I've had postnatal depression twice. I feel like the prolapse definitely has a lot to, you know, not to blame, but it has a lot to play. There's a lot of play in that because my strategy for dealing with mental health prior to being a mum was running and I can't even walk. I can't even walk to my bloody letterbox most days, let alone go for a run and get that outlet. So having that professional counselling is really important. And I know we were never really kind of planning to go down this path, but if you are listening right now and you're a mum who's struggling, please reach out and get professional support. And just like you said with the women's health, you've got to find your your match. I will say the same for counsellors. I've been to quite a few. Some I've connected with good. Some I'm like, okay. And some I'm like, oh, I'm not going back there. That was ridiculous. I have found one now that I've been going to consistently for oh, maybe the last three years. And I don't see myself stopping anytime soon because it's like riding a wave with prolapse. Sometimes you're really great and we're doing all these amazing things with brave mama and then you you wake up and you try to walk to the letterbox you're like oh fuck fuck this (laughs) like you just get really frustrated and you do all the exercises and you do stuff but sometimes it does it gets you it just gets you yeah and it's great that you speak out about that openly because it is important for women to know that they should get help and part of the biggest I have two aspects of how I treat women with prolapse One aspect is the physical side. How are we going to physically try to treat you to get you better? What are we going to do about it? What is our path? Um, Depending on the particular person. And the other side is mindset training. So having a positive mindset is extremely important in treating prolapse. Um, And just like you said with the counseling, you need to find something that helps relieve that pressure that you put on yourself so that you can focus on your recovery because having negative energy in our bodies only manifests into negative negative things physically and if we're trying to get ourselves better we need to try to focus on having some sort of and it doesn't need to be that you are happy about your prolapse but it's just about getting to a point where you're educated about what it is 
you find a some sort of path of hope where you can try to do something to make it better and then about finding a level of acceptance so that you can be at peace with where you are at and then progressing forward from there yeah yeah that all makes total sense to me sometimes I can do that really well Hayley and then sometimes I don't <laughs> um but it, like you said it's a process and it is ongoing and I'll, I'll never give up um I would love to be able to find out because I know that you you have mentioned a couple of times exercise has been a big big part of it but I do know we have a massive following of women who want to know a lot about other things you've done to help you get back on track. I'm going to make you say the word and then I'm going to make you teach us the word because I think I know how to say it and then I open my mouth and it comes out totally wrong. So you go for it. Okay. So the word <laughs> is hypopressives and hypopressives okay. translates like this. Hypo means low. So we're talking about low pressure. And then pressives is pressure. So we're talking about low pressure exercise. So I mentioned earlier that prolapse was a pressure management issue of intra-abdominal pressure. And basically it means that the forces from below cannot support the forces that are fighting down from above, which are the pelvic organs trying to descend down and our pelvic floor the forces that are created by our pelvic floor and our glutes. Hello, there we go. Secret source, the glutes. <laughs> um, they are not winning that battle. The pelvic organs are sort of winning that battle. So what hyperpressive exercise is, is it's a combination of diaphragmatic breathing exercises. It's a complete pelvic floor and core training program. And it also focuses on strengthening your posture from head to toe while lengthening the muscles through the body as well. So it's, it's very unique in the way that it's the only way that you can train your abdominals and your pelvic floor under decreased amounts of intra-abdominal pressure. Everything else we do, including talking right now, is increasing my intra-abdominal pressure. So for women with prolapse, um, this is why it's extremely beneficial for them because it's the only way that you can strengthen the pelvic floor muscles and create that lift under decreased amounts of pressure inside your abdomen. Um, wow. Okay, I'm learning so much right now. I'm just taking it in like a sponge. So where did it come from? So obviously, uh, And by the way, hyperpressives, when you say it, it makes it sound easy. I don't know why we're getting so stuck on that. But, I mean, um, I don't know why you struggle from? with it so much. But once you say it a few times, you'll get the ring of it. Hyperpressives, hyperpressives, hyperpressives. <laughs> is it new? Is this new or where does it come from? I mean, in some ways it's new. The concept of it is extremely ancient. So it was actually from 5000 BC. There, was, um, there were some yogis who performed a technique called the Uriana Bandha, which a lot of people who do yoga, they will have heard of this technique before. It's translated into an abdominal lock, which creates that vacuum look through the stomach, which I'm sure everyone who's listening to this has, has seen. Um, and that's what you relate to the hyperpressives. So back then, the monks and the chi ancient Chinese and the yogis used to do it to mobilize the diaphragm improve digestion, strengthen the respiratory muscles, and the monks used to use it as a technique to um, 
for fasting periods because it can decrease your hunger and help them through those periods where they're fasting as well. Um, but wow, the diaphragm is known as the muscle to the soul. And back to the whole mindset thing, this is uh, this is one of my, this is why I love hyperpressive so much more than anything physical that it can do for you. What it can do for you mentally is 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 just mind blowing, and it's known as a muscle to the soul, and that's exactly what we're releasing through hyperpressives as well. So it will promote. Uh, stimulates stimulate stimulation of your parasympathetic nervous system which is where we go to rest and digest and heal um so that is my favorite part about the hyperpressors but everyone here is probably more excited about what it can do for your pelvic floor and your core physically so it, it was an ancient technique but then it's been redeveloped by a couple of doctors along the way um yep. and it's been applied it, it's exercise techniques from more recent findings and tests have been applied and then it's been formulated into this routine which also includes some postures um, along with the breathing so there's the two sides of it and I like to explain for people who don't know what it is I like to think of hyperpressives as yoga for your pelvic floor and your core so we know yoga is great because it focuses on strengthening yet lengthening the muscles creating a great base of tone without bulking the muscles up too much but it, it also makes your body extremely functional and hyperpressors work in the same way they provide a myofascial release we're strengthening and lengthening the muscles throughout the body within an eccentric contraction when and what, what? Uh, <laughs> when, when our muscles are in a lengthened state basically they're, okay, they're, they're contracting great. in a long lengthened state just like yoga and it's also creating this huge lift of the pelvic floor muscles. And our pelvic floor and our transverse abdominals are made up mostly of one type of muscle fibers. So you either have your slow twitch or you have your fast twitch muscle fibers. And our pelvic floor are made up mostly of our slow twitch muscle fibers. So when we train traditional types of training we don't usually utilize as many of these muscle fibers but with hyperpressives we're targeting those muscle fibers and 70% of our pelvic floor is made up of these particular muscle fibers these are the muscle fibers which are responsible for endurance and long-lasting resting tone so how you can have a strong pelvic floor and flat abdominals is by increasing the resting tone and function of those muscles. Right. And, and hyperpressives will target that. How did you get into it? How did you find out about it? I mean, obviously you've got the exercise background, but how were you, like, when were you introduced to it as well? So I was already in the postpartum game, but I just actually stumbled across it on the internet one night while I was scrolling through social media somewhere and I saw this woman performing them and I thought, what on earth? is she doing to her stomach and then on further investigation and reading about how beneficial they are for prolapse in the pelvic floor I just thought I just have to learn more about this so I much like many people probably in this listening to this podcast I googled how to do hyperpressives and I found whatever information I could find and there wasn't that much of it and I tried to learn them. I, I just couldn't get it. I couldn't get it right. I tried for weeks. I'm, I'm like stiff weeks. I tried and I just <laughs> couldn't get it right. I just couldn't figure it out. 
Um, even and, with a sport, like even with a fitness background. And, yeah, yeah, because okay. I mean, this was a this was a couple of years ago, so there's probably more information now about how to do it. But back then, there really wasn't much at all. Um, and yeah. so I signed up to some classes from doc, for Dr. Jill Miller, and I learned from her. Um, and then once I learned how to do it and how amazing it was, and I I found the benefits for my pelvic floor as well. Um, I signed up to get certified from the International Hyperpressives Council. And so I got certified nice. in level one. And then I started teaching all of my clients that. And from the rave reviews from all of my clients and also from myself, they just blow my mind in every single way. Um, I got certified as an advanced instructor. Okay. And then from there, you can go on to do your master's, which I eventually plan to do. But um, that's not quite in my pipeline just yet but you want to make sure that you find an instructor who is certified properly by either the international hyperpressives council and they should be able to provide documentation to you if you ask for it or from yeah. low pressure fitness if they are not qualified from either of those two places then you shouldn't really be learning from that person they've probably just tried to learn on youtube <laughs> yes exactly yeah 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 and I think too because it is something that is not like you're the first person I've kind of met who who talks about it and who does it I should say but then now on social on Facebook I they keep popping up so there's a couple in the UK there's not I don't I don't I think there might be one in Australia maybe I don't know I'm sure they're out there but we it's just becoming like like a bit of a trend I guess there's uh, hundreds there's there's really hundreds so in Australia there will be quite a few and if you ever have okay. trouble finding an instructor you can contact the International Hyperpressors Council but there's also a Facebook group I think it's called Hyperpressors for Prolapse so one of the leading women in the Hyperpressors game her name is Trista Zinn and she runs this uh, she helps run this group or she's a main player in this group I should say um, and you can always pop in that group and ask, is there an instructor? I live in this area. I can't seem to find anyone via Google. Is there someone who can help me? Um, and it's always best to learn from an instructor in person because it's so much better for not only for the person who's learning, but also for us as coaches to be able to be hands-on um, and, okay. and see and feel with our hands exactly what is happening at each step along the way because you can do hyperpressors wrong and um, we obviously yeah. want to make sure that we're doing them right to get a lift of the pelvic floor rather than any pressure going down on the pelvic floor and being counterintuitive yeah, yeah that makes sense that makes sense um so i know like i notice i know obviously know that you you can work with women via zoom because i've seen them pop up and i guess you've just probably answered that as well if you can't see someone in person can it work via zoom i'm not a big fan of teaching people via zoom but i have done it and i will do it if there's no other option um, I have, because of, I find it quite, um, I don't find it as beneficial for people to learn online. If they can't learn in person with an instructor though, then where do they go, right? You have to learn via Zoom or, or online somehow. So I've created uh, a hyperpressives course, which you can learn online. And I find that this is a much better way for women to learn how to do hyperpressives if they can't afford or if they don't have access to a qualified instructor nearby 
So this course, the general course is, is four different videos. I've broken it down into four different areas so that people can practice each method along the way. Because step one is that you need to master your breathing mechanics in general. If you have poor breathing mechanics, you there's no way that you're going to perform hyperpressives correctly. So that's step one, right? You can't just go straight to doing a hyperpressives. And then it's broken down that way. So women can go away and they can learn that. And then do they need, if they need Zoom sessions in support of that, in addition, then I find that that's the second best way to learn them. And then the third way would be to just learn via Zoom, but without that additional support, I just feel like it's it's lacking, um, it's lacking a lot of coaching. Yeah, and I, I think we've found in the world of COVID that, being there in person and being fully immersed with a human and having that human connection, it really cements things in. Right, you know, you can learn courses on Zoom and you can watch webinars and you can do all of this stuff. But if you're in the room, if you're sitting in the room with people, you just get that different level of experience, don't you? So if women listening right now, they're interested in what you're saying, they want to find out more. Where do they start looking? So is this something that you have to go to your GP for or your women's physio or Google? Like how how do they get started? Where's the right place to look? Unless you're in Spain, your GP and your general physio won't know anything about it. But in somewhere like Spain, it's actually the first place where they will refer you after you have a baby. Um, they, they teach you hyperpressors because they know how beneficial it is. But if you're outside of that, um, your GP most likely won't know what it is. Only certain women's house physiotherapists will know what it is, but it's definitely on the uh, it's definitely on the climb. So in a couple of years, it will be quite common. Um, yes. But at the moment, you might have to research and try to find someone. But again, they should be even if they're a women's house physiotherapist, they should be qualified by the International Hyperpressives Council or by Low Pressure Fitness. And if they're not, then I wouldn't trust them as a source to teach you hyperpressors, regardless of their other backgrounds. Um, sure. So going onto that Facebook group, Hyperpressors for Prolapse, asking on there or looking on Google, you can go on my website and do my online course if that's an option. Um, otherwise, trying to find someone local is always is, is always the best, but someone local who is qualified and who you resonate with again. So it's kind of yeah, narrows great. it down a little bit, doesn't it? Now, if you don't mind, we do have a couple of our, our Brave Mama tips and tricks for women living with prolapse. We've got a couple of questions from them. There's three actually. Sure. Um, so obviously one of the questions was that they feel it's they when they've seen it online, it's quite conflicting instruction. So how would you, like, have you found, obviously being a professional in that field, that people have different ways of teaching it? Yeah, and a lot of just people don't really teach it right. I've seen um, from someone who I actually really respect, I saw them teach it online once in a quick little Instagram story and it was not done right and they actually didn't understand the breathing mechanics and how the pelvic floor works in general. So that kind of blew my mind from someone who I actually really respect in terms of um, physical rehabilitation, but there is definitely conflicting instruction. So um, making sure you again, learn from a proper qualified hyperpressives instructor is, is extremely important. And ideally it's someone who works, if you have prolapse, ideally it's someone who works in the woman's house space who knows about prolapse 
even if they've had prolapse. So a lot of us as um, as advanced instructors, we have recovered from prolapse ourselves. So Trista Zinn's had prolapse, I've had prolapse, Abigail has had prolapse. A lot of us have reversed prolapses and we practice and we teach hyperpressors. So we understand. Um, so if you ideally can learn from someone in that space, then, then that's great. Um, okay. Yeah. Right. Um, and obviously what part of the question was, how do you do them? But I think you've answered that as well, that you probably need to connect with someone and it's a bit of a process. You can't just, I mean, you can't just really show us here right now. It it's is. A bit but tricky. Probably give you a, a bit more of an explanation on what they actually, I think they want to know is how do you do the apnea, which is the vacuum. So this oh, is a really right. dumbed down version and this is, again, you should not be taking it just off this because there's you've got to master your breathing mechanics first off. Process. But um, the apnea is performed and how the hyperpressors work is you breathe in and as you breathe in, your diaphragm contracts to pull air down into your lungs. And then as we exhale, our pelvic floor will come up and our diaphragm will also mimic that. So they sort of work in sync with each other, which is why the diaphragm and the pelvic floor have such a big relationship towards each other. And that's why breathing mechanics needs to be mastered first. But anywho, you breathe in and then at the end of your exhalation where we're empty of air, we open up the rib cage, which opens up the diaphragm because the diaphragm is, is attached to the rib cage on either side, but we're not actually taking in any air. So what this does, this false inhalation causes a drop in pressure in the abdominal and pelvic cavities and it creates an increase in pressure in the thoracic cavity and this drop in pressure creates a suction effect of the connective tissues in the pelvic floor which is like a, a lift and suction of not only the muscles and the connective tissues and all of the fascia but also of the organs themselves as well so they will lift and wow. then the muscles the tonic muscles or the slow twitch muscle fibers will be contracting underneath that pressure. It also um, it helps, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It helps, um, oh, I can't find the word, but it helps create that space where your body knows to bring your transverse abdominals in and create a flat stomach. Because a lot of people okay. do this because they want a flat stomach. So it helps. Um, it helps the body warm to having that shape. And retaining okay. that shape overall. Right. Hmm. It's interesting. Um, another membership question is from Bronwyn. Uh, she said, what sort of training do you have to undertake uh, in terms of other qualifications? Uh, so like, do you need a background in anatomy and pelvic floor dysfunction? Do you have to have that to become certified? Do you know? You have to be a qualified exercise or health professional in order to be accepted to be qualified to be a hyperpressive instructor. So yes and no. Yes, in terms of you need to be a qualified exercise professional, which you do um, anatomy training for as well. You could also be a chiropractor who has okay. done anatomy training as well. You could be a woman's health yep. physiotherapist who has done extensive anatomy training of the pelvic floor itself. Whereas the chiropractor doesn't need to have extensive anatomy training on the pelvic floor and exercise professionals, unless they have upskilled themselves 
they, uh, if they're just a newly qualified personal trainer, for example, then they might not have much of an understanding of the pelvic floor itself. So, um, so yeah, yes and no, you do need to be a health professional or an exercise professional, but you don't need to do, um, you don't need to have, you don't need to be a woman's health physio. However, in the training, they do teach you and they do go over quite in depth pelvic floor anatomy for women. That's probably really reassuring. <laughs> it is to me, and I'm pretty sure it will be to Bronwyn as well, because that's, that's the fear, isn't it? That can you kind of just be taught something from someone who doesn't really understand pelvic floor? Um, and then the last question is, how often should you do hyperpressives? Um, as in probably the frequency, but also do the exercises stay the same or do they change? So you have basic entry-level exercises, which generally stay the same. Um, and then you have more advanced exercises. So for anyone who follows me on social media, you, you, you might see a lot of my, I call them hypo flows. Um, and those are more advanced level poses. But I actually freestyle a lot of my stuff anyway, just going by what I feel like doing at the time, sort of like a yoga flow. But the basic entry-level hyperpressive exercises will not change. And then you have advanced exercises, which also do not change. But then you can kind of, as you start to get more into it, mold them into a bit of a flow and make them more of your own. Uh, in terms of frequency, I think it's great to do them three times a week as a base. Okay. But you can't yep. do them too often. So if you could do them every day, then that's just great. But realistically, okay. most people wouldn't have the time and space to do them every day. Um, how long does a flow take? Or, well, I guess how long is a piece of string? But generally, what should people be aiming for in a flow? 15 minutes for a hyperpressive session would probably be the average. But I, I like to push mine when I have the time to around 30 minutes. But sort of when you go past the 30 minute mark, um, you just get tired, your breathing systems get tired. So, you know, between 15 and 30 minutes, but generally for most people, when they're starting out, 10 to 15 minutes is ample. And that's not a long amount of time to create um, a hyperpressive sequence that will give you amazing results. But the thing with hyperpressives is it's not a, it's not a permanent fix, just like exercise is not a permanent fix for, say, toning up your biceps. As soon as you stop toning your biceps, you they're going to go back to what they naturally want to do. And so hyperpressives should be used as a maintenance program, and some women may need to do them more often than others. Um, I also find my favorite thing to do is to do them three days in a row if you're trying to get some really quick aesthetic results. Doing them three days in a row back to back will give you a really nice looking flat stomach. Um, but again, if you don't do them for two weeks, it's just, it's not going to stay that way. So it's about finding the right um, balance. But I would say on average, um, three times a week would be a that good consistency. start. Yeah. Look, I know you're not a medical professional, but I'm just asking in, you know, your personal opinion, is there anyone that hyperpressives may not be suitable for? And I mean, in terms of women with prolapse, I'm not the general public. Um, anyone who has an IUD device inserted should not be performing hyperpressives. And that's an indication on how well they work as well, because it can suck that baby up and you might need a surgical removal. So please, if you have an IUD, wow. do not attempt to do hyperpressives. Um, in terms of prolapse, no, it, it could really help 
all women. But what I would say is obviously if you're doing something and it's making you worse, then you want to explore A, am I doing it right? B, is it making it worse for a particular reason? What is the reason? Yeah. You need a you need a health professional to help you um, figure that out. But um, if you actually watch a video of a woman with a third to fourth degree prolapse doing a hyperpressive, it's it's quite amazing to watch. It Do all just gets sucked one? right back up in there. Um, I don't. I wouldn't have the rights to the video, but I have seen a few. And um, anyone who gets instructed in the courses, they would have also seen them as well. So, um, yeah. Haley, I'm totally fascinated. I'm now. I've just got these light bulbs going off. Going. How do I get to New Zealand to train with you? Now that our transporters are open and hopefully they stay open, I just have never really like just I know we've we've chatted before about this before, but listening in such depth today has been so enlightening and thought provocative for me. I'm really curious now because I think I've tried everything and I'm open to everything, but I haven't tried this and I feel it's going to be the next thing on my list to do. I have a lot of people have flying been... to see me from all over the place. So by all means, if you want to fly over and see me and do it in person, then then please, how I'd love to take? have you. What, what does the, how long does the course take from start to finish? Is it like weeks? Is it months? Or how long does it take for, for a normal person to learn how to do it? If people come to see me in person, and this is where the the beauty of it is, and this is why I, I, I just say it's best to do it in person if you can. I can take some women or some men. I train men for hyperpressors as well because it's beneficial not just for prolapses. It's just a tiny, tiny little factor of why hyperpressors are amazing. But some people I can teach in one 60-minute session to go from, hi, how are you, nice to meet you, to them nailing maybe two to three poses of hyperpressives. And it really depends on the person. And often the biggest hump, especially for women with prolapse, because again, it's a pressure management issue and usually there's an issue there in the breathing mechanics. If there's an issue with the breathing biomechanics, that can sometimes take someone quite a while to retrain. How to breathe is not an easy thing to just quickly go, I'm not going to breathe that way anymore. Breathe like this. Yeah. Okay, I'll just do that forever. It doesn't quite work and truly, like that. With prolapse, and, and I'll, I'll speak to this, especially this time of the day, I've been bracing and holding on so tight all day by the end of the day I'm really breathing like a goldfish like this yeah just just trying to hold on so I can see where that would be um a big part and I think a lot of two a lot of women who have got the similar prolapse who have, have gone through the birth trauma are holding on to so much yeah inside. and then just on that as well if you're holding on to tension in your pelvic floor all the time what does that do it makes you hypertonic and people who have shallow breathing patterns are often hypertonic because the breath needs to go to the pelvic floor because the function of the pelvic floor is to contract and relax because it's a set of muscles. That's what every muscle needs to do. And it only relaxes under an inhalation because that's how it works. It mimics with the diaphragm. Again, this is why it all starts to you know, make sense here and become a, a bit of a bigger picture. But if back to that, if you're holding on to tension all of the time and if you have a shallow breathing pattern, or if you have avulsions, and I have a I have a terrible history of being hypertonic, which is when we clench all of the time subconsciously in our pelvic floor, and the muscles become too tight. Hyperpressives can help regulate the resting tone of your pelvic floor. If you are hypertonic, which means your muscles are too tight, it helps increase the blood flow to your pelvic floor area, which helps um, the oxygen uptake of the muscles themselves. 
It also provides a myofascial release of the pelvic floor muscles. So basically a stretch of the muscles, which right. will, and a strengthen and a contraction of the, um, of the fibers as well. So it can help regulate the tone if you're hypertonic. And here's where the magic really happens. If you're hypotonic and you don't have much tone in your pelvic floor and your pelvic floor is quite weak, then it can help strengthen your pelvic floor in, under the exact same patterns because we're contracting the muscle fibers and we're wow. increasing the blood flow. So, And then we're also improving our breathing mechanics, right? So if you can just only just improve your breathing mechanics without even performing any hyperpressives, your pelvic floor can get so much better from wherever it's at, whatever state it's in. Okay. Yeah, right. Oh, goodness. This has been so good. I have loved talking to you. And I know I'm, I do apologize. I know we've gone over time, but I'm pretty sure that anyone listening today, it's like they've probably got their cogs in motion like me. Like how do I? So where do people find you actually, Hayley, if they wanted to connect and reach out? Obviously, um, you can't answer individual questions, but if they wanted to do your course, where do they go? If you want to do my course for hyperpressives, you can go onto my website, which is www.aucklandhyperpressives.co.nz. So it's A-U-C-K-L-A-N-D, hyperpressives, H-Y-P-O-P-R-E-S-S-I-V-E-S.co.nz to enroll in the course. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram under Haley H-A-Y-L-E-Y, underscore Auckland.hyperpressives. And then sure. you can also find me in the tips and tricks group in Prolapse, which is the support group that we run for you women, um, which was founded by Steph Brave Mama over here. And um, <laughs> we are also quite active in that group. So if you need any sort of advice or if you want to open up a discussion about how you found this podcast, please feel free to, to do that with us. Or if you have any other questions, then happy to take those on as well. Beautiful. We'll definitely put the links in the bottom of this podcast so that people won't have to, they can just click straight on and, and contact you and reach out. But I can't thank you enough. I really, this has been such a great chat and I've learned so much more than I would, I've ever really expected. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I hope I didn't talk too much. I tend to talk a lot. It's one of my, um, one of my traits <laughs> as a Virgo. I, I overload people with information. I was truly surprised with the sheer amount of information that I learned from talking with Haley today. She is a true inspiration. I did personally sign up and pay for her course because I was interested to know how it worked. Honestly, I am yet to find or make the time to do it, but I do know that's coming for me later this year. And like with everything, we always suggest talking with your medical health providers prior to commencing any type of therapies, treatments, or exercise programs. This is just to ensure that the right program is right for you and your body. If our chat with Haley has helped you in any way today, it would be really great to hear your feedback over on iTunes. You can leave a comment or if you're pressed for time, Mama, that's okay. Simply just leave a star rating. And what this does is it helps other women know how it could be helpful for them too. 
In our next episode, we chat with a young woman who is smashing taboos by talking on her own podcast about periods, living with chronic illness, and sexual wellness. We catch Isabel from Let's Talk Period podcast. Tune in and bye for now. Baby, mommy.